More Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website, www.deanbible.org. Or you may write to Dean Bible Ministries at 5868 Westheimer, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. That's 5868 W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. That particular promise is a favorite of many believers and one we should uh, be claiming now in light of things that are going on in the uh, life of Ulan. We've been keeping up with him, and we got received a very disturbing email from him today. I'm going to read portions of it to you. Most of it's been put out on the Dean Bible website, and uh, we need to be in a lot of prayer for Ulan and his family. He writes that, uh, incidentally, he is in Oslo. We have confirmed that from this email. He says, we can't go to our homeland because uh, we have great troubles there, the Christian some of this, I'm not sure what it means, but he said the Christian family uh, is, living, is, is living in the house we bought. Uh, my wife and daughter are with me. I was, not, I was not afraid to be in my home country, but I was fearful for my wife and daughter and other Kyrgyz brothers and sisters. And then he describes the, uh, what it was like in jail and that the men in his church were tortured severely in front of him. I won't go into that. Uh, he says, My cousin's husband invited us to go to Hamburg. Apparently she, he lives in, uh, they live in, in Germany, so they were able to get out of the country but on a German visa. Uh, and after various procedures, he said, We came to Europe, to Oslo. They helped us there. Both of them said that the Scandinavian country is good for asylum. But we had German visas in our passports. It's a problem. Uh, because there is a Dublin convention, and soon, soon we will be transferred into Germany within two to four weeks. And then they will send us back to Kyrgyzstan. Germans and others always send people back who come to their countries honestly and openly with all the right documents. Our passports were confiscated by the police in Oslo, which I understand is standard operating procedure, when we asked for asylum. Today we just have copies of all of our documents, passport certificates, medical documents, what the extremists did to us, and uh, that I taught in a large church there, along with various video materials and pictures. Uh, Germans will send us through the Kyrg- to, will send us to the Kyrgyz embassy, and it means we will have many troubles. When we go home, many people who have been sent back are now missing. Also, it is very bad for my relatives. Before we left Kyrgyzstan, uh, one night a group of people tried to break into the metal door on our apartment and kill us, but Jesus saved us that time. Last week we were hiding, and we did not sleep at home. 
Extremists are now looking for us. Today we're outcasts even in Europe. I am disillusioned about Europe. They give asylum for extremists, for gays and lesbians, but not for Christians. I know it. They have a cross on, symbol on their flag, but it's just a symbol. Dinara, that's his wife, Dinara's middle brother, who is a believer, also left Kyrgyzstan because he was an active Christian as well. He is not in Europe. Recently, some people asked another of Dinara's brothers who lives in Kazakhstan about our location. He is not a believer. Nobody asked him about us before. Uh, Many countries in Europe sent asylum seekers back, and many of these people went missing. It seems they were tortured and killed by the authorities of their countries. Please pray for a solution to our situation, dear brothers. We lost everything except Jesus Christ. Is it possible, and then he goes on to ask if it's possible, to ask a U.S. embassy located near us for asylum. And then he asked for prayer. His wife has, he says she is sick in her head, so I don't know if he means she has a headache or a head cold, but he goes on to say medical treatment here is not for us. So that is the latest from Ulan, and we need to pray for them, pray for their safety, Pray that uh, God would uh, give us wisdom. I've been on the phone today with Todd Kennedy, pastor of Spokane Bible Church, and Mark Perkins up at Front Range Bible Church in Denver. And we've had a few emails going back and forth to different people seeing if we can locate uh, anyone who has political connections. So if you have anyone here has close political connections, if you know how to get a hold of a and, and you carry any weight with a congressman or senator or anyone else, uh, let me know. And we need to utilize every channel we can to try to uh, keep them from being sent to Germany or being sent back to Kyrgyzstan. And, of course, the most important thing is just prayer, just trusting uh, trusting the Lord and taking it before the throne of grace. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started this evening. Make sure you're in fellowship. Use First John 1, 9 if necessary. And then uh, I'll open in prayer, and we need to remember to pray for this family. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who controls the destinies of men. You control the destinies of nations. You are the God who controls history. You're a God who loves us, who watches out for us. And we know that there are times when, uh, as believers, we will be called upon to make the ultimate sacrifice for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are also times when you uh, demonstrate your grace in other ways and rescue believers from sure and certain suffering and death. And, Father, we do pray for Ulan and his family that they, uh, you have rescued them from Kyrgyzstan, brought them out. You, they are in a safe and secure place, yet there is still the threat of being returned. Father, we pray that you would uh, guide and direct them, uh, soften the hearts of uh, the, any bureaucrats that deal with their case, uh, give wisdom and guidance to those of us here in the U.S. who are seeking to help them and find ways to uh, bring them here or to Kiev or to some other place that will grant them asylum. 
Father, we pray that he might stand firm in his faith. We pray for the health of Dinara and of Alana, their little girl. We pray that you would keep them strong. We pray that you would uh, make them a strong witness in the in uh, whatever refugee camps they may be in, that they may have a sound witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that this just a recognition of this might make us ever more mindful of the tremendous freedom that we have and what a privilege it is that we do not live under these kinds of threats. But nevertheless, as we've studied in Revelation, that uh, the threat always exists in the cosmic system as the devil continuously goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Father, we just pray that you would uh, strengthen Ulan again, counsel him, give him direction, and lead him and watch over him. Father, we pray for us that as we study your word, that as we think in terms of people like Ulan, may it have a fresh relevance to us, that this is not just an academic study, but one that is at the very core of our very lives. And we ask that uh, we would be responsive to the teaching of God the Holy Spirit this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis 16. Now, we started our study on Genesis 16 last Tuesday night, but we didn't get very far because, if you remember, they were shutting down the overpass on 610, and so we cut out early, and we really didn't get very far. The thrust of Genesis 16, the basic doctrinal lesson, there are other secondary doctrinal lessons here, but the basic doctrinal lesson and Genesis 16 has to do with waiting. I have pointed out as we've gone through our study of Abraham that there are various tests in Abram's life that God takes him through in order to give him opportunities to apply the doctrine in his soul. The same way God leads us toward maturity by taking us through tests. So the real issue is positive volition. Positive volition in terms of learning Bible doctrine, learning the Word, memorizing Scripture, learning these principles, applying them day in and day out so they become a part of the way in which we think, the way in which we live, so that when we encounter uh, tests, we respond in the right way. We'll see in uh, our study of Hebrews that in the process of sanctification, as we go from point A to point B in one test to another, what happens is we are being trained in the arena of discernment so that we can, as we go through these various tests, sometimes we pass, sometimes we fail. We're, we're a lot like Abram. We don't always do it right. Sometimes we feel like we mostly do it wrong. But we gradually grow, and we are trained in the category of discernment, which means we're able then to more accurately understand and interpret the situation around us so that we can see what the issues are from a divine viewpoint perspective and apply Scripture. And it takes time, it takes diligence, and it only happens if you make the study of doctrine a priority in your life. Now, at age 86, he comes to another test, and this test is related to the promise of the seed. And we've seen in chapter 15 that he was concerned about this promise. It was so much so that God comes to Abram in 15.1 and says, Don't be afraid. This is always the orientation of the human 
heart in carnality. We get fearful. Uh, we, in arrogance, er, when arrogance takes over, whenever we're out of fellowship, and arrogance always takes over the instant you're out of fellowship, then we become insecure and we become anxious, worried, fearful, and a whole host of mental attitude sins can rapidly ricochet uh, from one, as we go from one event to another in our life, building a whole uh, complex of mental attitude sins. And this was what God was dealing with in Genesis 15 when he came to Abram and established this covenant so that Abram would have something objective and certain to rely on no matter what the circumstances might be. He could always go back to this covenant ceremony that was a real objective event in his life, and he could remember exactly what God said to him, exactly what God promised to him, and no matter how uncertain things seemed to be, he could he could rely upon that. And so having gone through this magnificent covenant ceremony in chapter 15, he and Sarai immediately succumb to human viewpoint and the temptation that we all fall prey to too more often than we want to admit, and that is impatience. We get an opportunity to bring about what we think God wants, and rather than taking the time to wait on the Lord, we immediately jump and to some sort of expedient solution that we think will resolve the problem and help God out in fulfilling His promise. And the results are always negative. They're not what we expect, and they compound the problem. Today I ran across a little statement, one of these things you see often in Xerox Stores, copy stores are stuck up on somebody's bulletin board, and it particularly fit this evening's lesson. It says, I'm God. Today I will be handling all of your problems. Please remember that I do not need your help. If the devil happens to deliver a situation to you that you cannot handle, do not attempt to resolve it. Kindly put it in the SFJTD file. That's something for Jesus to do. It will be addressed in my time, not yours. Once the matter is placed into the box, do not hold on to it or attempt to remove it. Holding on or removal will delay the resolution of your problem. If it is a situation that you think you are capable of handling, please consult me in prayer to be sure that it is the proper resolution. Because I do not sleep, nor do I slumber, there is no need for you to lose any sleep. Uh, Rest, my child. If you need to contact me, I am only a prayer way. As with all good things, please pass this on. So I thought that was particularly appropriate, especially the part about uh, don't get in a hurry, wait on the Lord, because that's the, as, as they teach you to say in seminary, that's the theological center of this passage. And that's something I've come to appreciate more and more as I go through Genesis is it's real tempting at times to take a verse and sort of run down a rabbit trail. But what we see is the Lord has, a, has particular doctrines that are being communicated within these contexts. And if we're going to teach the Word and not uh, superimpose on the Word uh, our own agendas, then we have to figure out what's going on here. 
And it's clear that the issue at stake here, doctrinally, is the importance of waiting on the Lord because when we try to solve the problems our own way on the basis of a human solution, what we do is compound the problem. So the issue here is waiting on the Lord, learning how to utilize the faith rest drill. And one thing that indicates that is that at the end of this particular chapter, we learn that Abram was 86 years old. That's at the end of chapter 16. Chapter 17 is 13 years later. The Lord just sort of reinforcing to Abram that you need to wait on me. And so I'm just going to be silent for 13 years to make sure you understand the point. We got started last week looking at the preface to the chapter, Genesis 16.1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. This is the second time we've been reminded of this, at least. We know she hasn't had any children. He's been worried about it. But back at the end of chapter uh, 11, when we're first introduced to Sarai, we're told that she had borne him no children. And we're told that again here in 16.1. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So this forms the background to the passage. Now, when we look at this, I brought out the doctrine of barren wombs last time because you always run across uh, in today's world women who and couples who have infertility problems and they often want to jump to a conclusion that why is God doing this to me? Why is God punishing me? Why can't I have children? What did I do wrong in my life? And it doesn't have anything to do with that. You can't illegitimately go back to the Mosaic Law and apply that to today. Under the Mosaic Law, God often, God often indicated the spiritual condition of the people through a physical or material barometer. So that in Exodus chapter 23, 26, he says when you are spiritual and, every, and you are doing well, there will be a, a multitude of pregnancies, basically. And when the nation is not doing well, there will be a multitude of barren women. That was under the Mosaic Law. He had the same thing in terms of crop, crops and crop failure. If the people were disobedient to him, what would happen? No rain. The ground would dry up, the trees and the, and the fields would not produce. But if they were obedient to him, then there would be productivity in the land. So God was using these physical means as a spiritual barometer. So we saw last time that barren wombs in Israel represented a spiritual issue. We also saw that God used six barren women in, in the Scripture to teach the principle that God brings life where there is death. It is a picture of regeneration. And three of the six barren women in Scripture are found in Genesis. They are Sarai, the wife of Abraham, Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, and Rachel, the wife of Jacob. And the reason each of these women have a problem with fertility is because God is demonstrating that through them, uh, the nation of Israel is going to be born in a miraculous way. That this is not a natural process, it is a supernatural process, and God has specifically supernaturally called out the nation Israel. Furthermore, we see that the barren womb was a type a shadow image of the virgin womb of Mary. 
which is where the miraculous virgin conception took place. Now, what we see in this chapter is that human solutions always look good on the surface. They are, in many cases, culturally acceptable. Our friends who are believers may look at us and say, you know, that, that's not a bad solution. You know, there's no, I don't see anything wrong with that. It's not immoral or unethical. Uh, it's not breaking any laws. Uh, in fact, some of my best friends have done this. And that would, is often the case. We can find many ways to rationalize hurrying along God's plan or helping him. But what we learn here is that man cannot assist God without destroying the basic principle of grace. That's the whole idea in salvation, is that God's saving grace is sufficient. It's without works. We don't do anything. Jesus Christ did everything. Faith means exclusive and absolute reliance upon God and His Word. The essence of legalism and religion is that man tries to help God. We try to aid him. We try to move the process along a little bit. We try to find ways and loopholes that we can pull God through in order to help him fulfill his promises to us. And so this is the case with Sarah. If you think of this as a drama, we have the uh, opening introductory scene in verse 1, and then in verse 2 we get moved to scene 1. And scene 1 is Sarah's solution. Sarah's solution beginning in verse 2. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. She has an accurate perception of the problem. Now here's an important principle to remember. Whether you're talking about theology or you're talking about church life, and I want to emphasize that, or you're talking about politics, all kinds of people can accurately analyze what the problem is. I can't tell you how many theologians or psychologists or people who have some new idea of how to make churches more successful can properly analyze what the problems are. And what I always see happen is that they'll say, this is the problem. And half the people say, yeah, you're right, that's the problem. And so whatever solution they propose they think is good because this guy agrees with them as to what the problem is. But just because you can accurately analyze what the problem is doesn't mean you have a clue what the solution is. And that happens in many different arenas in life. So always be careful of the solution. It's not identifying the problem that's important, although that is important. It is identifying the solution. So Sarah correctly identifies the problem, and that is that the Lord in his sovereignty has kept her from bearing children. Then she offers her solution. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. So this is the idea. And it is a proposal that is fully acceptable in that culture. There is one example from the Newsy tablets that reads, quote, Kelimninu, that's a name of a female, Kelimninu has been given in marriage to Shinima. If Kelimninu does not bear children, Kelimninu, that is the wife, shall acquire a woman of the land of Lulu. She is going to acquire her own personal slave, not the slave of the husband, but her personal slave, a slave girl, as and she will uh, 
acquire her as a wife for Shunammah. Now, that does not mean that the uh, this slave is a full-born wife. She's, it's a euphemism for uh, sexual involvement. It doesn't mean that she is, has the, the slave girl has the same status as the first wife. This was a culturally accepted practice, but in this case, it's a violation of God's promise. It's trying to figure out some way to help out God with solving the problem and producing the seed. So as believers, we always have to be careful that we're not helping God out and trying to resolve the problem. Now, this was culturally acceptable. You see, there are times when we can see a solution to the problem. It's not illegal, immoral, fattening. It's not... I just wanted to see if anybody was awake tonight. It's not uh, necessarily forbidden in Scripture, but it is a way to circumvent waiting on the Lord. We just help Him out. We speed up the process. We know what the end result should be, so we try to bring it about in terms of our own energy and our own efforts. This is a, we also see that this was a situation that was employed later on by Jacob. Leah and Rachel had two handmaids as well, Bilhah and Zilpah, and it is from the two wives, Leah and Rachel, and the two handmaids, Bilhah and Zilpah, that Jacob fathered the 12 progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. But at no time, and this is important, at no time do these slave girls ever have the same rights and privileges as the wife. Now, that's important. I'll show you why in just a minute. Now, what happens here is Sarah is trying to precipitate the will of God by seizing the initiative away from God. She's doing the same thing that Eve did in the garden. And, in fact, uh, Moses... And the way he set up the narrative in chapter 16 is very similar to the way he sets up the narrative in Genesis chapter 3. She chooses an opportunity to solve the problem on her own, offers it to Abram, just as Eve offered the fruit to Adam, and Abram looks at it and immediately jumps to the offer rather than stopping and thinking critically or evaluating the situation or functioning in a leadership role. They let their culture, in in the case of Abram and Sarah, they let their culture determine what the absolutes are rather than the Word of God. And that's something we, as Americans, must always be careful of because we have a culture, or at least in the past have had a culture, that was so influenced by biblical thought and so influenced by uh, an understanding of biblical absolutes that it was very easy to think, well, this is acceptable, it must be okay biblically, and in many cases it was. But... There are a lot of times when it's not. It's just a cultural expedient for solving particular problems. I often find that uh, this happens, especially in the arena of so-called Christian psychology, which isn't Christian and it's not psychology. I'm not going to get off on that rabbit trail, but it is a fundamentally, it is always a denial 
of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times when folks have problems in life, marriages or other individual problems, when they just need mature advice or counsel from a pastor or from a mature believer to help them over a rough spot, help them to figure out how doctrine applies to a particular situation. I'm not talking about that. I am talking about so many of these systems that have been developed over the years have done nothing more than take one of the myriad, and there's over, uh, well over 150 different models or systems of uh, psychology out there. And uh, there's Freudian psychology, and there's Maslow, and all, there's a whole host of them. There's Rogerian therapy. And whatever model you buy into, there's always some Christian who's come along and taken the basic elements of that system and, quote, baptized them, unquote, into Christianity, tacked on a bunch of Bible verses that are usually taken out of context in order to make it seem like this system is now biblical. And it's nothing more than a human viewpoint uh, scam that is designed to produce uh, health and security and stability apart from total and exclusive dependence upon the Word of God. And it's usually a lot rougher and a lot longer process to do it the biblical way than it is to do it some other way. And so people usually opt out for the non-biblical way. The principle here is that when we get impatient on God, we substitute hack human solutions for the divine solution. And human solutions always fail. Not only do they always fail, but they usually contain some sort of, let's call it a uh, human viewpoint virus that comes back and infects us with an even worse problem later on down the road, sort of like one, or maybe we could call it a Trojan horse, like the uh, computer Trojan horses and worms that that uh, slip in unannounced to your computer only to tear it up down the road at some predetermined date. But that's exactly what happens, and we do it all the time. We do it in little ways, we do it in big ways, and the only reasons our lives aren't worse than they are is because of the grace of God. Another principle is that under the pressure of adversity, we often rationalize an expedient way to help God. We often rationalize. We can come up with really good-sounding justifications for our actions. And we can maybe even quote a Bible verse or two, and yet in our, deep in our own soul we usually know exactly what we're doing. We just don't want to wait. But waiting on the Lord is foundational to the operation of the third spiritual skill, which is the faith rest drill. The faith rest drill. And we have to understand the importance of waiting on the Lord and waiting on the Lord's timing. We always have trouble with that timing test. I want to go through some passages, some promises. You may want to write some of these down. You may want to memorize some of these later to uh, recall when you're going through a particularly uh, uh, difficult time of testing when you have to wait on the Lord. Isaiah 30, verse 18, Therefore will the Lord wait that He may be gracious unto you, and therefore will He be exalted that He may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for Him. Now, 
one reason I chose this particular verse is because if you just look at that verse right out there in the open all by itself, you're going to misinterpret it. This is a problem with proof texting, problem with taking a verse out of context. If you look at the context of Isaiah chapter 30, Isaiah is just reaming out the Jews for their failure to wait on the Lord and for going into apostasy and idolatry. And so rather than being able to bless them right now, the Lord has to wait to bless them. Because right now they're in apostasy and they're out of fellowship. That's why the first stanza reads, And therefore will the Lord wait. And it's the Hebrew Hebrew word kalach, which means to uh, wait for the right timing. It means to be patient. And it means to simply to uh, wait for something. So the Lord will wait patiently that he may be gracious unto you. And the point was, in, in sarcasm, Isaiah is saying to the Jews, now, because you haven't waited on the Lord, the Lord's going to wait or postpone his blessing for you in order, and, and the time of his being gracious to you. He's going to put that off until he is exalted, that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. And what was going to happen was God was going to have to kick them in the seat of the pants and discipline them as a nation because they had forgotten the principle, which is the last line. Blessed are all they that wait for him. That's the principle that they forgot. And in the previous 17 verses of Isaiah 30, uh, Isaiah is reaming them out because they have failed to wait on the Lord and they have been trying to solve the problems of their nation on their own rather than waiting on the Lord. So the principle we learn from Isaiah 30:18 is failure to wait on the Lord results in God giving us a little discipline before He can finally bless us once we learn to wait on Him. So failure to wait on God results in our God waiting on us through divine discipline before He can bless us. Another passage which is well known to everyone here is Isaiah 40:31. But they that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. The Hebrew word translated wait in that verse is the uh, verb kava, Q-A-V-A-H, kava. Uh, it means to be hopeful, to have a confident expectation or to look forward with eager anticipation to something. It is equivalent to the concept of elpis in the Greek, which is confident expectation. It looks forward to the fulfillment of a promise. And the contrast there is, of course, to those who are weak and unable to help themselves. And in verse 31, those that wait on the Lord are strengthened. And earlier in that chapter, there is about four verses earlier, there is a rehearsal of God's power, God's strength, and God's ability. So the concluding thought is that 
in contrast to those who try to solve the problems on their own, the ones who have real strength are those that wait on the Lord. Now, this verb kava is used a number of times in the Psalms in similar uh, passages. For example, Psalm 37, uh, verse 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt thee. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt thee. As a matter of fact, I'll come back to this in just a minute, uh, so let's get past it. Uh, Psalm 62.5, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. Notice the qualifier of only here. See, so often we're go- God's functions more like our hold card. You know, we're just holding him in reserve. We're going to do everything we can to solve the problem on our own, but we know that we have a secret tool here that if everything else fails, then we'll go to God. That's the wrong approach. God wants us to wait on him at the very beginning. He is our strength. He is our sustenance. And we are to wait only on the Lord. And so often what the Lord does in our lives is he goes along and he removes all these crutches that we develop in life. And we all have them. They may be uh, jobs, careers, success, family, any of the status symbols, any of the details of life. We can crutch crutch on those things, and we know that that God's going to somehow uh, take care of us if the crutch fails. But what God's going to do is come along and kick all the crutches out from under us before he, he demonstrates that he's sufficient. And the word here translated wait in Psalm 62.5 is the word damam, D-A-M-A-M, which means to be silent or still. See, one word for wait indicates that confident expectation. It's a focus on future fulfillment, whereas the word for wait here indicates being silent, being still, not doing anything, uh, unlike Sarai in Genesis 16. So the word often occurs in the context of extreme adversity, catastrophe, or death, times when we most easily panic and succumb to emotion. Just settle down, claim some promises, let those promises stabilize your emotions, and wait until you're uh, relaxed in the Lord, and then move forward. Jeremiah 14.22 Are there any among the vanities, that is, the idols of the Gentiles, that can cause rain? I love Jeremiah. He's so sarcastic about the human viewpoint systems around him. He just is constantly in your face about some sort of uh, practice among the idols. He doesn't relax and say, you know, I might offend them, and that might hinder my ability to evangelize some of them. I just want to make sure I'm very, very uh, uh, conciliatory toward them so I don't offend anybody. He is just in your face all the time. Sort of reminds me about this, this guy. Now, I'm not sure I would do this, or I don't know that it's necessarily the right thing, but, but this guy, pastor of this church in, in uh, north of South Carolina, put a sign out last week saying, Flush the Quran." He was making a statement that the Quran needed to be removed. It was false teaching. From a divine viewpoint standard, he's recognizing the principle. He's just as in your face as, as Jeremiah was 
or as Ezekiel was. And, and you think about Samuel uh, decapitating Agag in front of Saul. He's just not concerned about the sensibilities of the unbeliever. And yet, people today often get that way, and that just shows that, that despite their uh, defensiveness to the contrary, we all get affected by this politically correct nonsense that just inhabits the air we breathe. And it happens to all of us, and we just have to be careful. We need to make sure that the truth is what offends people, but we shouldn't be concerned when the truth does offend people. Are there any among the idols of the Gentiles that can cause rain? No. Or give the heavens give showers? No. Art not thou he, O Lord our God? Therefore, because none of the other systems of psychology, sociology, uh, self-help techniques, positive mental attitude, none of these things can do anything for anybody. Oh, they may give you a moment of comfort here or there. They may uh, make you feel like you're doing something. But for the believer, we have the conclusion, Therefore, we will wait upon thee, for thou hast made all these things. We always have to go back to the character of God, that he's the creator, and he has made everything. And again, the word translated wait here is the word kava. Hopeful, confident expectation. And when is Jeremiah writing? Jeremiah is writing in the context of the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. It's anticipated that the Babylonians are going to come and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah, and they're going to go out under the fifth cycle of discipline. And so in the midst of all of this uh, horror that's about to come, he says, we're just going to relax and wait on the Lord. Psalm 25, 5, lead me in your truth, that is Bible doctrine, and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation, on you I wait all the day. So the psalmist exhibits that same principle, wait on the Lord continually. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord, or excuse me, Psalm 25, 21 and 22, let integrity and uprightness preserve me. It's a reliance upon the character of God again. For I wait upon you. The reason we can wait on God is because God has integrity. He backs up His promises and He is reliable. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all His troubles. And again, this is the word kavah. Psalm 27:14. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart, that is, your soul. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 33:20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. That's what results from the faith rest drill, is that God is the strength of our soul, and He is the one who surrounds us and protects us. But there are times when... We are trusting God and we're following Him and we're doing everything right and it seems like everything goes wrong and the unbeliever and the carnal believer seems to just rack up all of the success, all of they appear to have all the material prosperity and it seems that somehow God is blessing them. And this is another one of those Psalms that's refreshingly honest with how mo- most of us feel some of the time. The psalmist says in Psalm 37, uh, 7, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. The context is adversity. 
And here the believer is going through adversity, but the unbeliever or the carnal believer it seems to be blessed, seems to be in prosperity. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way. Notice, don't be anxious, don't be concerned, don't get uptight over the fact that there's some unbeliever or some carnal believer who appears to be prosperous. Uh, be, for those who prosper in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. This is the person whose uh, modus operandi is doing, a, in some cases, a right thing the wrong way. This uh, 37th Psalm is a great psalm to work through at some time. It's a wisdom psalm. In the Hebrew, it's an acrostic. That means it follows a pattern of the alphabet so that the first word in each stanza begins with the successive letters of the alphabet, and that was used as a means of memorizing Scripture in the Old Testament. So Psalm 37 is teaching that we are to rest in the Lord and not to be distracted by the unbeliever or the carnal believer who seems to be successful with his plans. The word translated rest is that word we saw earlier in uh, one of the promises, in Psalm 62.5, Damam. It means to be silent or still in the presence of adversity and then to wait patiently, and that's our word, Kava, with hopeful expectation. So it combines both concepts in this one promise. Verse 8 reads, Cease from anger. Don't let his success cause you to get out of fellowship and get angry and frustrated and all the other mental attitude sins that go with it. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. See, you've got anger, you've got uh, wrath, you have worry and anxiety. Do not fret. It only leads to evil doing. See, that's telling you, the believer, that if you get all uptight over some carnal believer's success or some... uh, 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 unbeliever success, you're doing everything right, and it just uh, it doesn't seem to be working out, and they're doing everything uh, out of a wrong motivation, and they seem to be getting blessed. All, if you keep thinking about that and focusing on it, it's just going to be one mental attitude sin after another, and that leads to evil doing on your part. For evildoers, verse 9, for evildoers shall be cut off. There will be justice eventually. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. See, this is the background for Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount that the meek shall inherit the earth. This is where it comes from. See, you can't understand the Sermon on the Mount unless you understand the Old Testament. Most people come along and come up with all kinds of crazy interpretations, but it's just simple humility. Those who are patient and humble, waiting upon the Lord, shall inherit the earth. When does that happen? That happens when the Messiah is given the nations for his inheritance, when he takes the kingdom, as we've studied in Psalm 2.8. And we'll get into that even more in Hebrews. So Psalm 37.4 is towards the conclusion of the psalm, says, Wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. See, we always just want to revel in the destruction of the person who did us wrong. Well, we may not see it in this life, but we will see it at the judgment seat of Christ. So you can just relax now and leave it at the Supreme Court of Heaven, and He'll straighten everything out eventually. As uh, Abraham states in the 
think it's in the 19th chapter of Genesis, how shall not the judge of of all the earth do right? So we are warned in passages like this and in others not to be like the, for example, Psalm 106.13, we're warned not to be like the Exodus generation, which quickly forgot his works, all the miracles he performed in the wilderness, and they did not wait for his counsel. So we have to make the Word of God a priority. This is the function and operation of the faith rest drill. Now, just for review, how does a faith rest drill work? It's very simple. One of the, it's basic to everything you do in the Christian life. The first step is you have to remember the Word. You have to remember some promise, some portion of a promise, some phrase, some principle, or some policy set forth in the Word of God. And then you grab hold of that with your mind, you concentrate on that, you think about it, and you mix it with faith. That's the second step. First, you remember the promise or principle. Second, you mix it with faith. This is the idea of claiming a promise. Now, have you ever wondered what it means to claim a promise? Try to put that in some other words. Just sit there quietly, think about how you're going to explain that to someone who doesn't know English idiom. Claiming a promise. What does that mean? We ran into this several years ago. I was teaching faith rest drill through a Russian interpreter, and I said, point number two, mixing your faith with a promise, you're claiming a promise. That translator looked at me like I was speaking Greek. That's a difficult idiom. What it means is to hold God to his word. It means to hold God to his word, to remind him of his promise, to rehearse what he has said to us and hold him to it. Say, God, this is what you said. I'm counting on you to fulfill that promise in this situation. That's what it means to claim a promise. So to do so, we have to make sure that we properly understood the promise. You see, there are promises that God made to individuals in the Bible. He made specific promises to Abraham. He told Abraham that he was going to give him a specific piece of real estate. He didn't make that promise to you. You can't go back and claim some of those promises that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant as if he made them to you. So one of the first things that we have to do when we study a promise is say, who is God talking to and to whom is he making this promise and are there historical conditions to this promise? Another thing that we have to analyze when we're studying a promise is its immediate context. What's going on in the surrounding verses, such as what I did very briefly uh, when we looked earlier at uh, the uh, Isaiah 30, verse 18 passage. We have to look at the context. We have to think about what's going on in the context. What's the rationale behind the promise? What is the argumentation that is being worked through in the thinking of the writer? As God the Holy Spirit is, is causing him to think down a certain line, usually concluding in this particular uh, promise. So that we, we think through that rationale and we come to grapple with that rationale that underlies the promise. And then the fourth step is we rest in that conclusion. And we rest in that conclusion for 2.3 seconds. And then we have to go back and we have to rehearse that promise all over again. Because after 
2.3 seconds, we suddenly put our eye on the circumstance again. We get upset at that person, that situation, that event. Uh, why doesn't God judge him? And we're out of fellowship again, so we have to use 1 John 1, nine. We get back in fellowship, and then we start going through that promise again. And there are some days, and we've all had them, where it seems like all we do all day long is confess that sin, claim that promise, and get out of fellowship. And then we confess that sin and claim that promise, and then we get out of fellowship. And we wonder if we're ever going to have any kind of forward momentum in this Christian life. But guess what? You could bail out any time during that day and not confess a sin and just say, I'm going to quit, and that would be a no-growth scenario. But the fact that we just keep practicing it and doing it, that's the growth scenario. That's where we're training ourselves to use the Scriptures. So it takes time. It's never simple. There are some situations and scenarios we go through in life, and five or ten years later, somebody just mentions a person's name, reminds us of that situation, and it's like no time has gone by at all, and we're vibrating all over again, and we're back to square one. So uh, we all go through those same tests, but God is faithful and has given us the way to escape that we may endure it. And that's the promise of 1 Corinthians 10.13. So this is the issue that Abram fails to follow. He's not waiting on the Lord. He's not waiting for the Lord to do exactly what he said. He's going to come up with some uh, alternative solution. And so he acquiesces to Sarai's solution. And at the end of verse 2 we read, And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai, just like Adam. There's an obvious principle here I won't state. You'll, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, you'll know what that is. Genesis 16.3, Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife. That phrase doesn't mean that she became the same kind of wife that Sarai was. She's, Hagar's never referred to again as wife. She's consistently referred to as the handmaid. It is merely a euphemism for sexual intimacy. Uh, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So they've waited ten years. But guess what? They've got another thirteen years to go. They have to wait on the Lord. They have to learn that. And because they keep trying to hurry it up, it just took longer and longer before they got a solution. Now, it's important to note that Sarai is indicated as Abram's wife, and Hagar is consistently stated to be the maid. The reason is because someday you may get involved in a witnessing situation with a Muslim. And when you start witnessing to a Muslim, they have all kinds of, uh, they have their own alternative scenario for what goes on with Abraham, Hagar, and Ishmael, and they want to elevate Hagar to the same level as Sarai. And so you have to go back to the text and make sure you point out that the Bible does not ever make Hagar a wife. The language here is very important to pay attention to. All throughout Genesis, Sarai is defined as Abram's wife. That occurs in numerous passages 
And Hagar is never called the wife of Abraham, either by Abraham himself or by God or by anyone else. So Sarai then acts in verse 3, takes her maid, the Egyptian, gives her to her husband, and uh, he goes into her in verse 4, and she conceived. Going into her is a euphemism for sexual activity. So she becomes pregnant, and now there's reaction. See, Sarah's operating on arrogance. I'm going to come up with my own solution. And arrogance always produces an equal and opposite reaction that's just as negative. So Sarai comes up with this arrogant solution that she's going to solve God's problem, and then Hagar reacts. And when she saw that she had conceived and her mistress couldn't, well, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And the Hebrew word there, kalel, means to belittle. She is diminished. She is uh, and, and she just looks at her with this haughty look, like, you just don't have it, do you? Look at me. It only took one time. So Abraham, uh, this is Abraham's action. And Sarai complains about this, her own solution. Here she gets out of fellowship. She's operating on emotion. As soon as she's uh, belittled by Hagar, then she complains about the solution that she came up with, and she blames Abraham. Just like in Genesis 3, isn't it? God comes along and said, okay, what happened here? And Adam said, look, it was a woman you gave me. Operation passed the buck. Then the woman says, well, it was the serpent's fault, not my fault. This is the same scenario in all sin. We always want to blame someone else. We always want to blame uh the environment or our parents or our spouse or our children or our employer or the circumstances, whatever it is, rather than taking ownership for our own sinful decisions. So Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon you. It's not my fault. It's your fault. You're the one who went along with my harebrained scheme. It's all your fault. When she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. And then I just always loved the sanctimonious uh, cry of the out-of-fellowship believer. The Lord will judge between us as to who's actually right. We always go to try to pull God into it somehow, that he'll, he'll straighten things out. So Abram said to Sarai in verse 6, Indeed, your maid, notice it's your maid, it's not his wife. He never refers to Hagar as his wife. Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her parents. So what we have here is this abused, pregnant runaway who is now trying to to, uh, put her life back together. And God is going to show up in her life. This is a tremendous demonstration of the grace of God to this pregnant, runaway slave. And we'll come back and talk about that and the remarkable prophecy that is given to Hagar by God starting in Genesis 16:7. We'll do that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word, to be encouraged by the promises and provisions you've given us to recognize that you are always faithful. Again, we pray for Ulan and his family, that they will not lose sight of your faithfulness, that they will uh, grow 
uh, even greater during this time of testing by trusting you, claiming your promises, and that they will not uh, falter. Father, give us wisdom as we seek to help him. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.